using a pew Bible, you should find that on page 616. Isaiah chapter 56. The bulletin is also kind of off because the, the picture I had on the front uh, from John chapter 10 and verse 27, I thought that fits so well with one of the verses in chapter 56. Um, in verse 8, where it says, The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. But, alas, that's not going to be till next week. And uh, I do the bulletin early in the week, and the sermon keeps coming together as time goes on. So, as often as not, it is kind of a mismatch. In Isaiah 56, we've read it once already, and it's pretty easy to tell if you've been with us in these chapters in Isaiah. Isaiah is kind of, kind of like a roller coaster. There's ups and downs. There's good and bad. Uh, resolution, every time you think you've arrived at resol- resolution, uh, it, it leaves again. So we go from a picture like that to all of a sudden it gets very black and white and grayish again. Uh, Isaiah is written quite unlike what I would expect or maybe even what I would hope for. So let me give you some idea of how this played out on a very small scale, just to give you an, a running example. Back in Isaiah chapter 42, we had a very beautiful picture with a, Behold my servant, and, and the Lord was doing everything imaginable for his servant. And it sounded like very good news in Isaiah chapter 42. But then the chapter ended on a dark note, Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send. So what started very hopeful and promising ended with a blind, deaf servant. Well, then we came to Isaiah chapter 43, and again, it takes a turn for the better. But now, fear not, behold, I'm doing a new thing. I've got good news. It sounded bad at the end of 42, but I'm doing a new thing. And what we find out is new is that the Lord provides a substitute servant. A substitute for this blind servant, this messenger who is deaf. And that substitute servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we know him as. He's the promised Messiah back in the Old Testament scriptures. They don't know exactly who he is, though they are supposed to be looking forward to him. So, based upon the Lord's substitute servant, we have a series of good things. Chapter 53, we find out that that servant lays down his life for his sheep. And that servant who laid down his life, who suffered and died, is then exalted and he receives rich reward from the Lord, from the Father, for his perfect obedience and his perfect sacrifice. 53 is probably the best known chapter in all of Isaiah. Then Isaiah chapter 54, the servant's success is announced. This great announcement goes out. How successful the servant was. Obedient even to death, but now highly exalted, highly rewarded. That's Isaiah chapter 54. In Isaiah chapter 55, where we were for three weeks, it starts off with, Alas, everyone who thirsts come. What the servant accomplished in 53... It was announced in 54, and if you're thirsty, come, and you will benefit from all that the servant has done. All of my sin, all of my guilt, all of my shame can be removed because of this servant. And a wonderful cry goes out. In the first part of 
Isaiah chapter 56, where we're at now, even foreigners and eunuchs are included. Even those who, in, under normal circumstances, were ostracized, who were set apart, who were excluded, who were second class, kind of like going back to Sunday school where we talked about these perceived classes. Even, in, even by Old Testament Mosaic law, eunuchs and foreigners could only get so close to the living God. But in Isaiah chapter 56, even they are welcomed to come and to seek the Lord who can be found. So this is all such good news. And and you think the book is going to have such a satisfying end at this point. But then in the second part of Isaiah chapter 56, it turns dark again. His watchmen are blind without knowledge. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. And this is kind of the story of Isaiah. This is the way Isaiah works through what is called his vision or Isaiah's prophecy. And what are we to make of this? What are we to understand about Isaiah having these ups and downs? They almost sounds bipolar. Like, is this Isaiah's good Sunday or bad Sunday? Are we going to hear the, the good message or are we going to hear the down message? Why does he do that? I would suggest that part of the problem or the struggle we have, the challenge we have, is our Western culture and thinking. And by that I mean, as Westerners, we think very chronologically. We think very linearly. And that's not entirely bad. It it certainly facilitates gathering together to study God's Word. I can tell you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 56 which was after 55, which was after 54. I can tell you we're going to be in verse 1. And everybody, by using chapters and verses, we know where to find things. And it's all very linear. It's all very chronological. History is linear. It's not circular. Eastern religions, think of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. Eastern religions are circular. Uh, Walt Disney World is circular. Uh, what's that in Lion King? It's the circle of life. What goes around comes around. There's really no beginning. There's really no ending. Everything just repeats itself. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches linear history. There is a beginning. There is a middle. There is an ending. It does move from there to there. That's what the Bible does. My Bible helps me in finding chapters and verses because it's all linear. So the... Bible writers are concerned with chronology, but not like Westerners are. Westerners are consumed by chronology, and sometimes we stumble over understanding what the Bible is doing when it keeps going from these wonderful moments, and now it feels like we just took a step backward again. Just when I thought things were resolved and getting better, Isaiah turns dark again. And how is it that God solved all the people's problems and then they fell back into sin? Or should I not look at it as chronological? And God really didn't solve the problem because they fell back into sin. What's going on? That's what I'm suggesting. I'm going to, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. I'm going to take you back to creation to understand something about what I'm trying to communicate here. In Genesis chapter one. So if you want to, Turn in your Bible, I don't need to give you a chapter and verse for this because it's the very beginning of whatever Bible you're using. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and let's read something about creation. Is creation chronological? Is it linear? 
The answer to that question is yes. Day one, day two, day three. I take those. I'm very traditional. I'm very conservative in that. I, I think they're literal days. The evening and the morning was day one. The evening and the morning was day two. It's a progression. It's chronology in Genesis chapter one. Let me read just a few portions of this. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, let me skip ahead to day six, and this isn't even the beginning of day six, but it's the culmination of day six in verse 26. Chapter one, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the first few verses of chapter 2, the first three verses, belong in chapter 1. I don't know how they put day 7 in a completely different chapter. But the first three verses are actually, they belong in chapter 1. And then you have Genesis chapter 2. Now, Look at the way Genesis chapter 2 starts off, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Skip down to verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, somebody who doesn't accept the record of Scripture 
looks at what I just read from chapter 1 and chapter 2 and says, you believers, you Christians, aren't two chapters into your whole big Bible and you've got two completely separate creation accounts. In chapter 1, man was created at the very end of creation, after the trees, certainly, after vegetation, and they were created male and female in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, you've got Adam being created first. Sounds like trees come after Adam. It almost sounds like the, the, the creatures come after that so that he can name them all. And then eventually, uh, God creates woman from the man. And it sounds very confusing. It sounds like two separate accounts. But they're not two separate accounts. They're two perspectives of exactly the same thing. So what's going on here? Uh, we, we're, we, mis- we make a mistake if we try to make it fit chrono- chronologically. Chapter 1, all of that happened, and then the next thing that happened was all of chapter 2. It's layers of the same thing. I had a, a pastor in a different sense. He described this difference as in chapter 1, it's a Google Earth view. In chapter 2, it's a Google Street view. It's a much more detailed, close-at-hand view. Now, let me ask you a question. Who created in chapter 1? God. Who created in chapter 2? Wrong. You're kind of right, but you're kind of wrong. And this is a really interesting thing. It's something that I don't think I know. I might have noticed it sometime in the past, but because my memory's not good, I I, I forget that I notice things. So I feel like I just noticed this this last week. In chapter 1, God created. Who created in chapter 2? Over and over. Who created in chapter 2? It's right there. The Lord God. The Lord God created in chapter 2. In chapter 1, God created. That's the most general, generic name for God. False gods are used, have that same name, Elohim, God. God created, this general concept of God created. God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2, the Lord God created. The Lord is his personal name, the name by which he is known to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All peoples worship some concept of God, but the God who created is the Lord God, Yahweh. Jehovah, however that should be properly pronounced or transliterated. The Lord God created in chapter 2. It's over and over again. It says that the Lord God had not caused it to rain. The Lord God made the heavens, the earth and the heavens. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is a personal description of what happened in creation. And it focuses between this personal God and his image, Adam. And it started off with just the man, and later came the woman. But it's this personal interaction between the living God, the Lord God, Jehovah God, and those that he created in his own image. And that's the difference between a Google Earth view in chapter 1 and a Google Street view in chapter 2. It's fascinating once you see it. Revelation would be another great example, which I don't have time for. But for much of my life, I lived as if Revelation, everything was sequential. Everything was uh, chronological. You had seven uh, seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. I've long since uh, 
in my own persuasion and understanding of Scripture, I think it's layered. I, think it's, I don't think it's chronological so much as it is layered. So you have seven seals, and you have seven trumpets, and you have seven, and I'm going backwards for you, so it should be here to there, and seven bowls. But that's, that's another, time, another story. Now let's take, with these things in mind, I want you to consider the structure of Isaiah. This is a good time to do it, and I'll explain why. Uh, understanding that not everything is chronological as we are comfortable with, or are familiar with, let's layer that into Isaiah. I've told you when I started this series in Isaiah, I divided Isaiah up into two sections, the first 39 chapters and the last 27 chapters. And there was some good reason for doing that. Uh, The first 39 chapters kind of correspond to like we have 39 books of the Old Testament. The last 27 chapters kind of correspond to to what we call the New Testament. Now, there is grace in the Old Testament, but it's more about judgment, or we see more demonstrations of judgment than we see grace. And in the New Testament, there is judgment in the New Testament, but we see more demonstration of grace than we do judgment. And so Isaiah kind of divided up that way. We are, in our series, we're just doing the New Testament of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. That's somewhat helpful, it's somewhat not helpful. Because it's artificial, Isaiah didn't divide it up that way. And in fact, it's somewhat of a stumbling block uh, if I don't see the unity uh, of the entire vision of all that Isaiah had to say. Now, a more liberal perspective, and liberal not in a good view, but in those that really, uh, they would say that the Bible is not the Word of God, The Bible contains it. It's in there somewhere, and we got to find it. And the way we find it often is a reflection of our own desires and hearts and culture. Uh, The way they divide Isaiah is three sections. And so the, the real liberal people, they would say, one guy wrote the first 39 chapters and he was done. And then later on, however many years later, decades later, maybe even 100 years later, another guy picked up. Where, I, where the first guy left off, and he wrote chapters 40 to 55, and it came to a very nice end. And then a third guy wrote chapters 56 to 66. And that, in their minds, helps to explain why we seem like we take a step backwards when we thought everything was finished. Well, a new guy wrote that part of the book. I don't believe that at all. I think Isaiah wrote the entire thing. I think one Isaiah wrote the entire thing. So, what I found very helpful this week is from a new resource I got within the last couple months. It's a commentary by Paul House, who's a seminary professor. He's an Old Testament scholar. He's an author. He's obviously authored a couple books, commentaries on Isaiah. And Paul House had a fascinating way to understand Isaiah. I wish I'd gotten this when I started Isaiah, and I wouldn't have done this this way. Uh, although this is a lot simpler to divide it up into old and new, but more accurately, Paul House really discovers something that I think is helpful to understand why there seems to be this back and forth. He puts it this way. This commentary divides the book according to the number of times it depicts the movement from, and he emphasizes these prepositions, it depicts movement from 
people's disastrous sins and their effects on creation. Two, they're residing with God in Zion in a new heavens and earth through God's redemptive work shared with his servants. Zion passages mark the end of sections. Thus, this commentary examines Isaiah through the, to the following structure. So the idea is this. Isaiah keeps talking about, here's the problem. And the problem, and when it says, uh, from people's disastrous sins, I would say that could be more accurate by saying, Israel's disastrous sins. Because in Isaiah, it's not just people, it's Israel. The chosen people of God. It's their disastrous sins that are in view, and it affects all the Gentile people. Israel's sin has a, has a ill effect on them and all of creation. But it moves from that to all of a sudden these people are residing with God in a new heaven and a new earth, or a, a new Zion, a restored Zion, a perfect city. God takes them from what is a disaster to what is perfect and beautiful and finished and righteous and good and holy. So from this problem to this, and it's through the work of a servant. It's through a redemptive work. It's through the work of Christ, of Messiah, of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how, that's how we know him as, as having seen Scripture fulfilled. And then he gives these ways that the whole, all of Isaiah breaks down. Now, I can put that screen on the Facebook group. Uh, don't feel like you need to try to write all that down. But let's look at just a couple of those. Go to Isaiah chapter 1 and look how this plays out. It's fascinating. I wish I'd known this from the beginning. Isaiah chapter 1, we start off with a problem very early on in Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to skip the introduction in the first verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged in this awful picture of sin within Israel, which affects all the Gentile nations. What hope do they have if the chosen people of God are hardly the light that they're meant to be? But then the situation resolves itself in chapter 4. So skip over to chapter 4. It's a short chapter. I'm going to start off in verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. Now we have this wonderful, complete picture of the way it was meant to be. And then Isaiah, the way he constructs his, his, uh, his entire vision, he then reverts back to the problem in chapter 5. He winds up with a resolution in the end of 12. Back to the problem in 13, resolved by 27. Back and forth between the problem and the solution. It's not just chronological. I'm going to tell you the problem one time. 
and I'm going to give you the solution one time. Don't miss it. He keeps, he keeps circul- circling back, describing the problem, describing the solution, over and over, different ways, layering it out, which is what scripture writers commonly do. They don't give it to you one time. We don't have one gospel, pay attention. You've got four gospels. And each one sheds a little bit of light that another gospel didn't shed. And with them all together, we have the most beautiful picture. The church is a beautiful picture of the people of God. You cannot be the church on your own. The church requires each believer to be here to demonstrate their aspect of God's grace, the way that they reflect the grace of God in their life that benefits everybody else. And if I'm not here, I'm left to myself, and I miss all these displays of the grace of God in other believers' lives. You can't be the church on your own. And so you've got this back and forth, and why does he do it this way? Why does he not just give it the problem one time and the solution one time? Here's the answer to that. Number one, he's impressing upon Israel the extent of her sin and her need. He just doesn't tell you how bad you are in chapter one, and then we've got all this glorious resolution. He keeps going back to the problem is you, Israel. You, the people of God, though you've been given the covenants, though you've been sent prophets, though you've been given kings, though you've been given a sacrificial system, though you've been given the law, no matter what I do for you, you are the problem, Israel. Secondly, he's impressing upon Israel the magnitude of the Lord's covenant faithfulness and grace. Though they are the problem, the Lord is committed to his solution because he's covenanted it by his own name, in his own grace. Israel's problem is deep, but the Lord's faithfulness and grace is greater than their sin. Thirdly, he's impressing upon Israel the necessity of repentance and faith. I will not realize or I will not have a sense of my need for repentance and faith if I think the problem really isn't as bad as as somebody else thinks it is. Uh, I really think I just need a quick tune-up. Uh, I just need you to point me in the right direction. I'll take it from here. No, the extent of sin is greater than you realize, and you need to just abandon your own way of thinking because my thinking is not your thinking. My ways are not your ways. You've got to leave it all behind. He's impressing upon them that necessity. Number four, he's impressing upon Israel the Lord's sovereignty and providence among all nations, all peoples, all rulers. That's a big theme in Isaiah. No matter, he tells Israel, no matter where I send you, no matter what happens to you, I'm still God. I'm still the Lord your God. I'm still in charge. I'm still faithful to my promises. I'm still faithful to what I'm going to do for you. I don't care who's on on an earthly throne. I don't care how much power Assyria has. I don't care how much power Babylon has. I'm the one calling the shots. Trust me. And then lastly, he is instilling faith and repentance, or patience, faith and patience in Israel. And this is the already not yet principle, which I'm going to explain moving forward. Uh, The Lord God is saying, look what I've already done for you. Here's what I'm promising to do for you. So while you're between this already and not yet, when you're in that little dash period, trust me. You know what I've already done for you. 
And you know where it's all going to wind up because I've already promised it to you. So in the middle, in that dash point, trust me. Trust me. I know where I'm going. All nations, powers, authorities are all there by my command. Trust me in the moment. So now let's apply this. It's pretty easy to do. Number one, it's teaching me the extent of my sin and my need. Number two, it's teaching me the magnitude of the Lord's covenant faithfulness and grace. Because anybody who puts their hope in the Lord receives the same steadfast love that the Lord had for David. Which is from Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. What the Lord promised David, even though you sin against me, here's what I'm going to do for you. The Lord's promised me. Yep, you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. There's going to be times where no, people won't, by what you did or the motives of your heart or what came out of your mouth, it will be hard for somebody to believe that you are even a Christian. But my covenant of grace is greater than your sin. And I'm going to see this thing through to completion. Applied to myself, it's impressing upon me the necessity of repentance and faith. It's impressing upon me the Lord's sovereignty and providence among all nations, peoples, and rulers. That's why Christians are given the promise, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't make any difference what the circumstances are. It's going to work for good because I'm in authority over all those things, and I am working them for your good. It doesn't make those things good. But I'm working those things for your good because I've, I've called you by my grace. And then lastly, it's instilling faith and patience in me. And again, this is the already, not yet principle. Let me explain that. Well, actually, I've, I guess I have it. This is a checkpoint. And I'm, but is anybody unclear on this before I move forward, before I build on this? Comment, question? Need something clarified? We good? Okay. Let's build on this then. Isaiah chapter 56 starts off this way. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, we're going to start breaking down the particulars really starting next week. But just a quick reflection on those first two verses. Something doesn't sound quite right to me as somebody who's committed to reformational values. Committed to saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, through uh, revealed to me through scripture alone. All those things are true. And I'm looking at verses 56, verses 1 and 2, and it sounds like salvation is the result of me keeping justice and doing righteousness. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like if I'm committed to keeping the Sabbath and not profaning it, if I'm committed to keeping my hand from doing any evil, that I receive salvation. Now, I know that can't be true because of what I know the Bible teaches other places unless the Bible is hopelessly uh, a tossed salad and isn't meant to make any particular sense or have any unification. But that's not the case. So let me explain this. The terms of pardon and forgiveness were already outlined. That's in chapter 55. He's not revisiting that. He's In 56, he's addressing a people who've experienced salvation, experienced pardon, experienced forgiveness. So if you'll look back to chapter 55, uh, 
it may be just a page over. I've got to find, it, find out where I'm at in my notes. Uh, in chapter 55, it started off this way. Alas, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. What you're about to receive in chapter 55 and verse 1 is not because you kept justice. It's not because you did righteousness, because that would be buying something with something. And what he's offering or proclaiming in chapter 55 can't be bought by you. It can't be bought by my righteousness. It can't be bought by my Sabbath observances. So, salvation occurred back in chapter 55, and if you skip back to chapter 43 and verse 25, it's even more clear, and this is uh, summarizes uh, what the Bible says as a whole. Chapter 43, verse 25, the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I blot out your sins not because you kept justice. I'm blotting out your sins not because you did righteousness. The only reason why God blots out sins is for his own sake. It's only a reflection of his own grace and his own mercy. That's why God blots out sin uh, and guilt. So, the terms of pardon were already outlined. I need to know that first. Secondly, God's pardon is followed by future promises. What's already happened in the past, God also reveals what's coming in the future. So at the end of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 12, For you shall go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will, uh, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Here's what I've done in the past. I've pardoned you. I've taken away sin. Here's what I'm promising in the future. It's a new Zion. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a heavenly city that comes down from heaven onto a new earth. And then thirdly, God's pardon is accompanied by certain expectations. These are the expectations. For a people pardoned, chapter 55, for a people that are anticipating what God is yet to do in the future, while you're living in the dash, here's how you should be living, is what Isaiah is telling the people. A pardoned people, a people who is still given more promises in the future, how do you live in the meantime? Chapter 56, verses 1 and 2. It's the already not yet principle. I've already done this. I've still promised to do this. In the meantime, while you're living that dash, here's where you should be living. Chapter 56, verses 1 and 2. Ephesians talks about this. Titus talks about this. This is New Testament doctrine as well. Uh, You're saved by grace alone. Uh, through faith alone, and that faith is, is not of yourselves, is the gift of God, lest any man would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. You're not saved because of your good works, but you're saved unto good works. Let me give you the Titus passage, which you're probably less familiar with. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That doesn't everybody that's ever been born, that means there's no class of people excluded. Those who seek the Lord 
who call upon him and are saved, it's every class of people, every tribe, nation, tongue, language, ethnic group, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it's appeared to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now you've got a past, you've got a present, and you've got a future. What has God already done? To the people that Paul writes to, the grace of God has already appeared. It's brought salvation. And in the meantime, we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I know what he's done. I know what he's promised yet to do in the same way as you've seen him go. He's going to return again in like manner. Only this time he's going to come with the angels of heaven and all power and all glory. I know that's how it winds up. I know what he's already done in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dying on a cross. Rising from the grave. Ascending to the right hand of the Father. Pouring out the Spirit upon his church. So what am I to do in the meantime? In the meantime, I'm to renounce ungodliness. I'm to be zealous for good works. Because of what Christ has already done. And because of what Christ has already what Christ has promised yet to do. It's a, it is a lie of uh, a shallow faith, or what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called, uh, what did he call, a cheap gospel? Cheap Cheap grace, a cheap grace, that all salvation is, is a bypass hell ticket. It's much more than that. Where God's grace has saved an individual, it teaches those individuals to renounce ungodliness and to be zealous for good works. That's what Paul taught Titus. That's exactly what what Isaiah is teaching. It would read this way. Believers live a certain way. That is, they keep justice and do righteousness because of what the Lord has already done and because of what the Lord has promised yet to do. That's, That's the message of the Bible. What God does that only God can do and what God has promised yet to do. And in the meantime, I'm to live like he's done it and he's going to do it. I'm to be a reflection of that. So uh, John the Baptist would be an example of this. Um, John the Baptist would be an example of this. John the Baptist said, uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But John the Baptist also said... uh, should write down these verses. John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Something's happening. He has come. And, and the axe is laid to the root of the tree. So there's more coming. Here he is. I'm not worthy to un, untie the sandals on his feet. I shouldn't be baptizing him. He should be baptizing me. So something's already happened. Something yet is to be done. What happens in the meantime? between the fact that Christ is here right now, but not everything is fulfilled right now, in the meantime, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's the dash between the already and the not yet. That's what John the Baptist taught. But if you know the story of John the Baptist, you know he wound up, surprising to himself, he wound up in Herod's prison. He wound up being beheaded. But before he was beheaded, he sent this message to Jesus by his disciples. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I didn't know this was in the plan. Uh, 
I didn't know this was in the plan. And Jesus sends back this word. He answered John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Look what I've already done. You know what I've promised to do. So what do you do in the meantime? Blessed is he, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In that present dash, it doesn't always make sense. In that present dash, we shed tears. In that present dash, we get disappointed. In the present dash. But I know what he's done. And I know what he's promised to do. And so, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me in that dash to not stop trusting in you entirely. Christian, the Bible presses me to consider, is my living in the present circumstances of life a reflection of Christ's completed work in the past and in light of what he has promised in the future? Christ didn't save me so that I can live my best life now. Christ saved me so that as an individual, saved within a community of believers, we reflect what God has done in the past, what God has done in the future, and the things we live for are so much more important than what the world lives for. And my life should not be a reflection of the world's values and interests. They should be a reflection of kingdom values and kingdom interests to the glory of God. Now, what are your comments and questions for the last time? Sarah? Exactly. Look at what I've already done. Look at all the evidences of who I am and what the kingdom is like. And, and I'm promising you, he tells the 12 disciples, you're going to sit on the 12 thrones of Israel judging the 12 tribes. I mean, that's a promise for the future. But in the dash, in the dash is the struggle. But it's just a dash in light of all of, all of history, in, all, in light of all of God's uh, plans for the future. It's just a dash. It does fit well with Sunday school, which is amazing. The Bible just so consistently does that. What Larry teaches in Sunday school, it's like, it's like every week we're meeting behind the scenes and like, now what are you going to teach? And, and all right, I can play off that and I can use that. And, and we, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen at all. It's because this book is all under the inspiration of God's Spirit as it fits together that well consistently. Somebody else?